Welcome to Horse to Culture, a digital salon hosted by the Known World Courtesans, where we bring you conversations with interesting gentles from around the world. The Known World Courtesans are a free confederation of reenactors who have chosen a pre-1600 sex worker as our persona, along with the patrons, bodyguards, and entourage that may accompany us. As courtesans, we educate about historical sex workers and stand in solidarity with modern sex workers against sexism, misogyny, whorephobia, homophobia, transphobia, racism, classism, and all other forms of discrimination. Learn more about our group by visiting knownworldcourtesans.org. Today, we have the lovely Catherine Lavinor of Castlemere Trimeris with us. And we're enjoying the afternoon in my lovely Atria. My name is Lucretia Lepida, but all of my friends call me Lepida. How are you this afternoon, my friend? I am doing quite well. Um, it's been a hectic couple of days mundanely, but that seems to be sort of calming down and I am relaxed. My kitty cat is napping in the chair behind me, so maybe she won't annoy us. <laughs> we are good Excellent. to go. Excellent, excellent. Well, we have we have had many starts and stops with our our lovely salon today, uh, but we're uh, we're flexible as courtesans, so we just made it work. Uh, and I am so glad that we have and that we're we're going to be having this conversation because you have some really interesting things to talk to us about. Yes. Uh, so, <laughs> absolutely. So, are there are there any um, websites or anything like that projects that you'd like to promote here at the start of our our salon? Not really at the moment. Most of my projects are pretty personal. Like uh, my big SCA project right now is Garb. Um, so, but that's not anything that's going to have a website or anything like that. It's just um, just something you're working on. Just what something I'm yeah. working on. Uh, there's a Facebook group that I I am participating in, started by a lady in Aitenveld. And so all of the the local things happening there in Aitenveld, I think it's I think they're in part of New Mexico, um, mundanely. But it's called From the Skin Out, and the project is to hand stitch, as authentic as possible, a complete outfit for your persona, starting with underwear, and then working out to any like cold weather gear, or hats or whatever like that would be the last the last part of that. I'm still on the underwear. <laughs> I absolutely love that. I am making myself some underwear right now, hand stitching it. And I think I might have to look that group up because that sounds fantastic. I have to ask, do you guys ever talk about makeup or any hygiene type stuff? Um, I haven't seen, I guess that's discussion. the skin. Yeah. <laughs> um, I haven't seen any discussion of that so far in that group. That does not mean it's not necessarily welcome. Um, there are there are certainly cultures in which makeup and jewelry and perfume and hairstyling would be very much a part of how you were expected to look. Oh yeah, you know, just, most just of like, them. Yeah, most of them. You know, just like in the modern, you know, in the modern world, if you work in an office, you know, there are certain things that you're supposed to wear, and it, you know, it depends on your office. If you're in a law office, you're probably going to be in a suit. Whereas if you're in say the corporate office of a warehouse business business casual is probably good enough but you know and 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 that was true in period too you know what you wore around the house every day would be something you know a lot less ornate than what you would wear if you had to go to court absolutely and even the cultures that don't really talk about it usually are using 
um, perfumes and things like that, whether they're actually admitting to it or not. Right. And, and hairstyles are a thing too. So. Yes. So are we drinking this afternoon? What are we drinking? Uh, I am drinking raspberry seltzer. <laughs> Nothing too, too interesting. Um, I don't usually do alcohol um, early in the day. And and this is the afternoon. <laughs> this, is the, this is the afternoon. And uh, I also don't do a lot of alcohol for personal reasons. Uh, one of them being a family history of alcoholism. And that's a big mess. And the other yeah. being I take a couple of medications that either don't play nicely with alcohol or play a little too nicely, depending on how you look at it. <laughs> yeah. Well, so. team, team, anything is welcome here. Team seltzer is absolutely just as welcome as, as anything else. I have a sweet red blend uh, that I'm finishing up from the last time I recorded. If I can get the lid off and uh, it, it was, it did good by me last time. So hopefully it'll continue the trend. Yeah. Uh, we have some, Yes, we have some new uh, Patreon patrons. Uh, we have Luc Noir. Thank you so much for your support, Luc Noir. And uh, you make this possible. Uh, you make us possible for us to continue doing this and uh, not relying just on my broke-ass artist self to fund it all. So thank you. And uh, <laughs> random shout-out to one of our, not a random shout-out, but a very purposeful shout-out to one of our random long-term supporters, Christopher Stanley. Thank you for all of your support. Uh, Lo, these many months that you have been here to support our podcast. Thank you for believing in us and what we do. Uh, yes, I I don't have any new patrons since our last salon, but I do have a new member of my entourage. I have a very prestigious local gentleman here in Trimeris who has agreed to join my entourage as my advisor. So, uh, I'm going to keep his name secret because he, like I said, he's very influential and uh, in here in Trimaris. But uh, shout outs to you if you're listening, sir. I'm very glad to have you in my entourage. And I am very much looking forward to uh, all of your advice because I certainly need it sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> Don't we all? Yes. <laughs> Ooh. Okay, yes. The red is treating me just as well as last time. I enjoy Yay. All right. So, uh, so do you have any patrons you'd like to give a shout out? I do not. I have not been active in person a whole lot lately uh, for medical issues and financial issues that are kind of tied up in the medical issues. So and yeah. I, I don't have a pa Patreon of my own as far as like the, the website um, just because I don't. <laughs> Fair. Are you looking for a patron? Not at the moment. Um, All right. If I... If I were able to be at events more often, I probably would be, but... Well, there might be a patron out there who also doesn't make it to a lot of events and is interested in just having that relationship with someone that maybe they could have on Facebook. That's true. That's true. And I would be open to that. So there you go. If you're, if go. you're perhaps that gentle out there, um, our lovely uh, Catherine is just here and she's wonderful you'll get to know her a little bit more in this episode and if you'd like you can reach out to her um, or reach out to us and we can put you in touch um so getting into the meat of our discussion how did you get started in the sca so i had known sort of tangentially that it existed for a long time and in 2002 i was reading one of my favorite books camper of Caldy by uh, Catherine kurtz 
who is um, Countess Bevan Fraser in the SCA. She was one of the very early Queens of the West. And she isn't very active anymore um, for mundane reasons, but she's been a published author longer than I've been alive. And I was reading um, Camber of Caldy, which is the first book in one of her trilogies. And the dedication uh, is in part to the good people of the Society for Creative Anachronism, without whom this book would have been, fin been finished far more quickly, but far less well. And I was like, hmm, and hopped over to the computer and did an online search. And lo and behold, the then Shire of Castlemere was meeting the following evening. <laughs> and the rest ah. is history. <laughs> um, and the so rest you've, you've been in Castlemere for a very long time. Yes. Um, I... When I joined in 2002, I was active most of 2002, and then in 2003, I went back to Charleston, South Carolina, uh, SCA Atlantia, uh, to finish my college degree. I, had, I lacked two classes, and I was like, I am not, repeat not, being six credit hours shy of this degree. Um, oh, no. No, no, no. And I tried to get in touch with the local group there, and I wasn't ever, wasn't ever able to get in touch with anybody. Um, I don't know if I had bad contact information or what. And then I had a little detour into Meridies for about five months and then came back to um, Castlemere. And here I have been ever since. Um, although intermittently participating because of medical and financial stuff. <laughs> right. And chronic illnesses and those invisible illnesses, they can be a real barrier. Um, to participation in the SCA. So that's actually part of why I wanted to make sure to do this salon is because you're fantastic. Oh, and I know I've met you once at, uh, at a, an event face-to-face -face, or at least mm. once or twice, but I also know I don't see you out at them enough, but that's no reason you can't participate. Right. So that's one of the, that's one of the beauties of uh, this these digital salons is that they can, they can include people who maybe can't make it out to events anymore or at all, or just lately, either any of those things. And, and there are, um, I do think that the courtesan group is very mindful of accommodating people where they're at. Yes. Um, no matter what that means. Yes. So, excuse me. <laughs> uh, Oh, no, it's quite all right. So, um, so sh I'm in a Shire now. So, and you're all the way, you're, you're a barony now. And that's just from having more members. Um, I am not actually sure. I was not participating actively when the transition from Shire to barony happened. I know there Fair. had been a lot of debate about it for years before it finally happened. Um, there's apparently some drama there that, I wasn't oh. going to, so I'm not going to go there, except to just to mention oh. it in passing. Um, I know one of the things that is being a problem, or well, a challenge for Castlemere right now, and probably uh, for a lot of groups, is participation. You know, there are usually a small core of people who do 80% of the work, and that leads to burnout and that leads, you know, and there's the whole aging of the, the population of the SCA in general, which means yeah. a lot of people are, you know, older, maybe poorer, maybe in poorer health. And that's, that's not a great thing for, for any organization. Right. And, you know, and also with any organization, 
no matter how noble the stated purpose, no matter how good the intentions, you're going to have things like personality clashes and because just people are being humans. Yeah. Well, and, and, uh, our society is not immune to the same cultural changes that are happening in the rest of the world. Um, no, that is quite true. And yeah, and and it's been a rocky time, like culturally, for everybody. Like we've really changed how we view each other, how we view how we interact. Um, I have a, I have a male friend who is, like, just constantly like, I don't know how the fuck to talk to people to date them, and it's like. Nobody does right now. Like dating has completely been upended. We don't know how we're supposed to interact. We're making it up, um, which is better in some ways, but really hard regardless. Yeah. Reinventing so, the wheel is a pain in the neck. <laughs> right. And and especially in a society that is so, so steeped in historical cultures that are deeply, deeply, deeply divided along gender lines to have that interacting with a modern world that is so completely reexamining what, gender even means let alone how the the two dominant gender binary men and women should interact with each other we're rethinking all of that mundanely and so it's no there's no surprise that a society embedded within a culture doing that is going to have its its issues in the road yeah bumps in the road and whatnot yeah yeah and i mean Um, we do talk about those things and work actively on them but there's still a whole lot of good and amazing things going on in society so oh yes absolutely so how did you get started with the persona that you have now? Um, I majored in English. And so I, you can't really study literature without studying history. Um, because in order to, you know, any decent literature teacher is going to make sure that you understand the cultural context for any given work of literature. And yes. when you're studying English literature and I, I, leaned very heavily on British literature mm-hmm. um, in my in my formal studies. You know, you, you have to learn about the culture, you know, in which Chaucer was writing, in which Skelton was writing, in which Shakespeare was writing, in which Spencer was writing, Milton, you know, keep on going. And my personal fascination point landed on late medieval England. Um, Basically kind of the end of the reign of Edward III and all of the tussling for the throne that ensued for the next 150 years or so before uh, the battle of, well, before the battle of Market Bosworth, where the Tudors just kind of eliminated all the other (laughs) claimants to the throne. (laughs) Uh, But, and of all the people to recommend this type of book, my Shakespeare professor recommended what she called a bodice ripper, the novel Catherine by Anya Seton, which was written in, I think, the early 1950s. Okay. Um, and my Shakespeare professor was a whole, oh my gosh, she was such a, she was such a trip, such an awesome professor. Um, hands down one of the toughest graders I ever had to write for. And she, she, I, I just, I loved her to pieces. She was awesome. Anyway, That's and awesome. for her, for her to recommend this kind of a book, we were all like, this dignified, you know, Southern lady of a Shakespeare professor. I mean, she taught other things too, but she was, she was the Shakespeare professor in the department at the time, is recommending 
a romance novel. And it's really more of historical fiction. You know, it's really more of proper historical fiction than romance novels. But that that is there. And uh, it was actually, it was hard to find for a while. It was out of print. I found a very, very beat up copy in a used bookshop and snapped it up right the hell then because Dr. Morrison had recommended it and started reading it and was just fascinated. And then it was republished a few years ago with a foreword by Philippa Gregory, who wrote The Other Balloon Girl and The White Queen and The White Princess and, and all, you know, she was also interested in that same period. And so I, of course, I grabbed a copy of the of the republished version because my, my battered, you know, used bookshop copies had, had really kind of seen better days and the spines had split and all that fun crap. Oh, yeah. So... And then uh, there is a writer, uh, a British writer, and she has written both uh, biographies and, and historical books, and also she is writing novels as well. But she wrote a biography of the the, the novel. The novel Catherine is about Lady Catherine Swinford, who was first the mistress of, and finally the third Duchess of John of Gaunt, who was one of the sons of Edward III and the father of Henry IV. Um, and the the novel really took a, an awful lot of liberties with historical fact. Um, or, well, no, it's not really that. She, not a lot is known about Catherine Swinford for sure. Because <laughs> she was a woman and women are mostly left out of medieval chronicles. Um, and she was, you know, she was scandalous. She was, you know, and we have a tendency, the kept woman of of the Duke of Lancaster. Yeah. And we have a tendency to kind of try to make unacceptable members of marginalized groups disappear from history. Um, like, because, and, and it's not necessarily all just, um, about oppression like uh, well it is about oppression but it comes out in a lot of ways i think a lot of times people are like well let's remember the good parts of this person and by doing that they choose a swath of characteristics that aren't actually good or bad they're just things that society maybe doesn't want to talk about and they kind of push those things aside and focus on other parts and if the person is just really too scandalous they they push them out of history completely um so that that's a not uncommon theme with 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 courtesans and with sex workers throughout history. Yes. And, uh, yeah, it is. It, it, it is. Um, it's, it's part of the reason why, although this is out of SCA period, why um, Napoleon's wife, Josephine was such, you know, that was just this massive, massive scandal that he had married effectively yes. a professional, professional courtesan. Um, and, you know, and that, that plays out again and again and again over, over history and across various time periods. Um, but anyway, the historical Catherine Swinford was the, the daughter of a knight uh, named, you see his name rendered a number of different ways, Payne de Roe. Okay. Um, and he died when she was very young and she wound up in the household of Blanche of Lancaster, who was John of Gaunt's first wife. Um, and Alison Weir, whom I was talking about a minute ago, wrote an actual biography of Catherine Swinford. Called, uh, the, the U.S. title was Mistress of the Monarchy. It had a different title in the U.K. because I think the you know British readers would have 
kicked up quite a fuss at that title. I think it may have been, <laughs> uh, what the heck was the UK title? Uh, it was something about the well, scandal, like, like the scandalous Duchess or something like that. Anyway, okay. she dug really, really deeply into uh, primary sources of that period in English history and found a fair few things that either Seton didn't see or ignored when she, when she researched the novel yeah. and, um, or, or just maybe it was some of the documentation was just not available in the late forties and early fifties when, when Anya Seton was, yeah. was researching. Um, well, yeah, but, and we've made, and huge, it was, it was the Seton novel that inspired Weir to want to write the biography. <laughs> of course. So. That's um, beautiful. And between Catherine Swinford and the modern author Catherine Kurtz, that was why I chose my Catherine as my, my SCA first name. And I kind of meandered around on finding a surname. Um, but Catherine's, Catherine had a sister named Philippa who married, of all people, Geoffrey Chaucer. Oh, <laughs> so she, um, so I, I, I wound up deciding, and I, I love Chaucer. I, the Canterbury Tales, the Book of the Duchess, the Parliament of Fools, all that, you know, he was just, I love what a, I, I love how much of a smart ass he was. And yes. it's, it's, it's fun to see that in a different time period, how people are just going to be people and, there are a lot of people who just have a fast mouth. <laughs> yeah, and for everyone who thinks that, like, The Daily Show is an entirely modern phenomenon slash idea, it's just nah. the being on, it's just the being on television and being it's, to have clips form, of TV news. It's yeah, the form that's of the, the media only... that's new. It's not the concept. <clears throat> the concept is very, very far from new. You know, there and that's, are, yeah, there that's, pr that's pretty in universal. Roman, yes. you know, Juvenile, although yes. Juvenile is more like a Juvenile is more like I think a Rush Limbaugh than a, a Daily Show, because yeah. I think he's culturally a very conservative guy for Rome. But um, regardless, it's still that that punditry, the com the idea of commentary. Like I watched a really fascinating documentary about how punditry was invented in the '60s, and I thought, was it? <laughs> Yeah, you, you didn't you didn't do your homework there, did you? You know, producers of that documentary. Um, no, and I think I think that like yes, the actual TV news pundits, the talking heads, arguing side by side. Yes, that's a, a new kind. Of, but is it really that different from like a Punch and Judy show or a debate? <laughs> yes, you know, and that, that's yeah, that's been a thing at least since the middle of the 19th century in, in the U S and I mean, when I was in the debate club in high school, the, the actual debating, cause we also did a lot of other public speaking type things mm -hmm. and I didn't actually do the debating part. I did, uh, I did prose presentations and a couple okay. of ex extemporaneous speaking projects. But anyway, the debating part was actually called the Lincoln Douglas debate style. And, nice. you know, that's the Lincoln in question is Abraham Lincoln. So you right. know, that that's certainly been a thing, at least since the middle of the 19th century in the United States. And I have to think that there's probably oh, precedent before yeah. that as well. 
Well, it goes back to Socratic dialogue at its yes. root. And that's Socrates. That's Greece. So, and then we have in, in Rome, um, and this is a thing, like, in America, like, a man's virility is obviously in his penis. We're very into penises. It's, it's a thing. And we look yeah. at Roman stuff, and we see the giant penises, and we think that they are the same. But let me tell you, and this is going to blow some people's minds, the thing that they thought was the embodiment of masculinity in Rome was the mouth. Because that's what you used to orate. And oration was a demonstration of your power, but also your wit, your smarts, and your education. And so that was a very, and a big thing that, you know, if you were in the senatorial class or aspiring or working your way up or trying to make a name for yourself, um, you would be a lawyer. Cicero was a lawyer. We actually have like a murder trial that Cicero speaks at is recorded from Rome. And it, there's not like evidence like their idea of justice is very different than ours it's really about who makes the best argument in court so who has the best speaking lawyer so for roman men debate was the shit debate was where you got your fat old cock out and showed how much of a man you were so it, it was a really big deal <laughs> that, and that's and not that's, new that's another thing that's another way in which people have not changed um i for my, I'm not going to speak for anybody but myself, but if I'm going to have a long-term sexual or romantic relationship with someone, they'd better tickle my brain as well as my nether regions. 100%. <laughs> you know, 100%. It's, it's not going to last if we can't have some intellectual and emotional connection as well as the sexual. It's just yeah. that, it's just that simple. One hundred percent. And and uh and but side note, that's why men going down on women was like the most taboo thing in the world because you were polluting your mouth with feminine energy from its source. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, history. So yeah. this this ties in really well. So what inspired you to choose a sex worker persona? Um, for one thing I am interested in a lot of what I call the marginalia or the minutiae of history. The, mm -hmm. the little tiny details that are not recorded in the grand historical record, but you can usually find them if you keep looking. You know, the ways that people ran their everyday lives. You know, I, one, of my first, one of my first historical loves was historical cooking. Um, my mother is a huge, huge fan of the Laura Ingalls Wilder books, and she bought a book that someone else had written called The Little House Cookbook, wherein this woman had gone and researched just about every single recipe in that entire series and figured out how it was done at that time in the kind of tail end of the, the 19th century. That's in, amazing. In the U.S. frontier. And my mom wound up having to buy me my own copy because I wouldn't leave hers alone. <laughs> Love it. Um, but, you know, and sex and sexuality are part of everyday life now and then. Yes. You know, that, that was a lot of, you know, a lot of the point of marriage. And a lot of... And, and this ties back in with my literature studies, a lot of people, a lot of modern people tend to think that 
everyone before 1965 or so was completely prudish. Oh, and yes. that's absolute nonsense. And if you study yes. history at all, you will know that is absolute nonsense. You know, even the Victorians that were supposed to be so prudish and proper and, and you know, covered the legs of pianos because, oh no, there was some freaky, freaky porn going on in that time period. I mean, it wasn't, oh, yes, you know, ma'am. obviously it wasn't video porn, but there were, there were some, some freaky, you know, wild, extremely kinky, uh, you know, written erotica, photographs, so on and so forth. Yeah, the, and... the listeners can't see me nodding emphatically, but I am, in <laughs> fact, nodding emphatically. Um, <laughs> and, you know, you go further back, and there are all of the, you know, if you, back on Chaucer uh, with the Canterbury Tales, if you read the Miller's Tale, that thing is... A, raunchy as hell. Yes. You know, just super rude humor. Yes. Um, You know, one of the the climactic scenes is of someone sticking their butt out the window so that someone else can literally kiss their ass. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, you know, and he was writing that in the tail end of the 14th century. Yeah. If you want want a, a modern, there's a modern movie based on the Decameron. And it has uh, Aubrey Plaza. It's called The Little Hours. And it is possibly one of the most raunchy movies I've ever seen that wasn't explicitly pornography. <laughs> and it, it's based, it's complete. And like, I know enough about the Decameron to be like, yup, that's, that's it. They haven't yeah. added anything. That's the and, story. And Chaucer was riffing off of Boccaccio and Decameron in writing the Canterbury Tales. And mm-hmm. you go further back and there's, you know, Ovid has some extremely explicit poetry and and other writings. Uh, And he's not the only one. (laughs) He's just one of the, one of the more recognizable names that was, was doing that in classical Roman literature. I Um, love Catullus. Catullus is actually my favorite. (laughs) And he's the worst. He's the worst. He's like a little, he reminds me of like, just, um, a really snarky, like in our culture, a really snarky gay guy. Like he's yes. not in any, he's not in any way um, what Romans would identify as gay, which isn't the same as what we have, but whatever. Um, but he, he's an upper class manly man, but the way he talks just, he's so bitchy. Oh my God. <laughs> like that's just <laughs> so much. And then he turns around and he writes these poems about his brother dying. And you're like, Jesus, Fucking just give me a box of tissue first. Warn me. Right. And, and yeah, it blows your mind. That's the mark of a good writer to be able to shift gears like that. To be able to write, yes. you know, raunchy comedy and heart-rending memorial poetry coming out of the same, you know, coming off yeah. the same person's pen. I would, that's actually kind of a, that's impressive. A compliment. You know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, I. I would say Sulpicia, but there's not enough Sulpicia poems to really say Sulpicia is my favorite Roman poet. So, but no, but and, Ovid. You, know, you go back, go back even further to Sappho. You know, yes, dear mother, I cannot weave. The, you know, my torn up with love for this for for this woman, and you know, and you can keep going. You know, although you going, side but... note about Sappho within all of our time periods, like pre 1600, Sappho was almost universally recognized to be um, cock hungry, mm. like crazy, 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 slutty for dudes. And that was the reputation that lesbia had 
as well in the ancient world was that they gave amazing head. So let's... <laughs> If you're reading anything from the, the ancient world, Roman or Greece, and they're talking about lesbians, they're going to be talking about the lesbians giving amazing blowjobs, and it's a little confusing. <laughs> because our conception of lesbian is basically a 19th century thing. Yes, yes. Yeah, it's it's fun. The way things change in history is so fun. And and the way words change, oh my, don't even get me started on that. I will be on a linguistic tirade for days. Uh. That, I actually think that that is a big part of why we think people in the past didn't have sex or enjoy sex or interact with sex the same way we do is because of the universal truth that everything becomes less sexy when your grandparents are doing it. Like, yeah, yeah there's I mean, no like, way around that. That's no. like universal. So like the 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 racy the racy slang for dicks, which by the way, dick is our racy slang for dicks, but the racy slang for dicks, like in the twenties, is like pecker. And that's not a sexy word because it's a word your grandma and grandpa would use. Because they're right. from the twenties. So, you know, those things have a way of like or like no one likes the kind of underwear they saw their like dad wearing. Yeah. <laughs> that may that might just be me. But I'm just no, like it's don't not. Okay, it's yeah. Not. My, so, my stepdad wears tidy whities I cannot take... My, right. I'm not going to go into this in detail, but my stepdad is effectively my father. My biological father was kind of a shithead. Um, but my stepdad I'm glad you found the father you deserve. <laughs> yes. He's awesome. I love him to pieces. Um, yes. Well, that, I actually got in an argument with my mother about tidy whities or briefs when I was a teenager. <laughs> and ultimately, she was like, I don't understand how you can like boxers. That's what my dad wore. And I was like, <laughs> whoa, hold up. My dad wore tidy whities because you could not handle him wearing boxers because that's what your dad wore. And I had this sort of like realization at that point that nothing is sexy when your, your parents slash grandparents do it. And that makes the past seem like the immediate past seem incredibly unsexy you know what i mean yeah yeah um, and then we kind of just if we don't really sit down and think about it we kind of just project yes yes if we if we don't examine why we think the way we do mm -hmm. you know you're, you're just going to to and you know and i think it's worth examining why you think the way you do i mean you can't do it constantly that's just that's way too much mental bandwidth well, and a pain in the ass but you know it's, but if it's you do you should time. maybe consider joining us <laughs> yeah. and it, it's worth taking the time to think about hey why do i feel I this way about this topic or why do why does this this train of thought always go on this particular set of rails or you know whatever yes 100 percent. well and you'll have a healthier relationship with your own conception of sexuality if not your own sexuality if you sit down and think about it more but that's that's why we're here to remind people of that because nowhere they're not saying that a lot of other places nowadays. <laughs> no, yeah, true. So tell us more about your courtesan persona. What what is their story? Okay, so when I started playing in the SCA, my actual daughter was about nine years old, and I um her I was married to her father very briefly. We divorced. Haven't spoken to him in in decades at this point. Um, it was several years at the, at the time I started playing in the SCA and I needed a reason in persona to be a single mom. So I decided that my persona, um, I, and the reason I brought up Chaucer is that the, the choice of, of surname and profession was, uh, Cha my persona is a vintner. She owns a wine shop and Chaucer's father was a vintner. 
So she would have grown okay. up, yeah, the persona would have grown up in the same part of London as Chaucer and his siblings and so forth. Anyway, so she she is the only child to survive to adulthood of her of her, her vintner father. And when that that fact became apparent to him, he made sure that she was educated to be able to run the shop uh, once her father died. And to that end, he married her to his most promising apprentice. And she got pregnant more or less immediately. <laughs> and it was getting on towards summer in London in 1360, whatever the heck. And plague was starting up. So her father had a younger brother who went off to fight under Edward the Black Prince at Crecy and did very well on the battlefield, impressed. Uh, and of course, Edward was not called the Black Prince at that time, but uh, Prince Edward, the son of, of Edward III. And he, mm-hmm. impressed, he impressed his lord so much that he was knighted and given a small uh, estate in the country. So her father and her husband, and I think she as well, decided it would probably be better for her health to go visit her, go visit her uncle in the countryside until she had had the baby and was recovered from childbirth and all that, all that fun stuff. And so she does that. And the following year, she comes back to London, baby in tow, to find that plague killed her husband, her father, almost all of the house servants. And all but one apprentice, who has been doing an admirable job oh. of holding the shop together, but it's just this chaotic mess. And yeah. So she's a widow with a young child, and that was the re- like I said, the reason for that was because I was mundanely a divorcee with a young child. There you go. <laughs> um, and I kind of just left her there for the longest time, and I was 26 when I joined the SCA, and I'm now 43, and I'm like, you know what? I kind of need to move her out of young adulthood and more towards middle age, but I just haven't gotten there yet. Um, And I also had thought to do a secondary persona and make that person a courtesan. And then I changed my mind about that because I found another research rabbit hole on medieval India and decided I wasn't going to, going to take the, the Indian persona in that direction. But I was like, you know what? Catherine was widowed young, had a baby. So that's kind of evidence that she would have been, you know, eligible to remarry because she could have children safely or at least had done so once. But mm-hmm. in the, you know, late 14th century in London, there might not have been so many um, suitable husband prospects because of plague, because of wars, because of famine. You know, it was kind of a mess. And so she winds up never remarrying because there just wasn't a suitable middle-class husband, you know, available. And she catches the eye of a nobleman. And I haven't exactly nailed this down yet, but she catches the eye of a nobleman. And eventually he asks her to be his mistress and she takes him up on it um, for for financial reasons, for social reasons because while the most respectable route for her would have been to either remain single or to rebarry with the protection of a wealthy nobleman you know she's going to get a little bit of social flack but not a lot because you know if her 
if her protector, you know, you piss off her protector, and that that might not end so well for you know, random right? random person in in medieval London. Um, and I have to think she was probably a little lonely too. You know, people people like to be around people other get people. Lonely. People get lonely. Yeah, people, people get lonely. People get horny. I mean, you know, <laughs> yes, <laughs> you know, it's that's the way it is. You know, or, yeah. well. For a lot of people, not not necessarily everybody, but a lot of people, if they haven't had a sexual partner in a long time, they're going to be kind of like, yeah, that would be kind of nice about now. <laughs> um, yes. But it wasn't... Been there. <laughs> it wasn't exactly the grand plan for her life, and that was how I landed on this concept of accidental courtesans. You know, it's not like she gets back to London with her infant daughter and is like, you know, let me go, you know, let me... Hire new house servants and, and train them to do their jobs and sign on more apprentices and start training them and, you know, mend my clothes and sew clothes for my child and find a nobleman to, who wants me to be his paramour. Not exactly on the to-do to list. It just sort of happened that way. And the more I thought about it, the more I thought that probably a lot of people in sex work, historically in the present day, you know, it wasn't part of their grand plan for their life. It was just the thing that made sense at the time. So yeah, no, it absolutely, and I think I think for a lot of people, especially because sex work has always been stigmatized, it's not something where most people set out and they say, "Oh, I want to be a whore when I grow up," or "Oh, yeah. I want to be," you know. Um, yeah, you, but, you don't hear six-year-old children saying, "I want to be the, the the kept companion of a wealthy person," you know. They'll the way they yes. say, "I want to be a doctor when I grow up," or a teacher, or other a than firefighter. I mean, I guess not it. I guess not at six, but um, when I was a teenager, my cousin and I had a long discussion and she wanted to be a pole dancer and I wanted to be a kept mistress. So, <laughs> so it sometimes happens, but maybe that's a symptom of less stigma or at least less stigma in the subculture we were raised in because we were like, those seem like awesome jobs. Yeah. I mean, there, there are worse <laughs> ways to make your way in the world than to be the kept companion of a wealthy person. You know, yes. Whether, well, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm just kind of you phrasing get, it that way to be gender inclusive it, because, you know, you might yes. be the mistress of a woman or the the true. The and it may or may not a, have it, you know, of, a, of another man or, you know, whatever. Yeah. And it might not even have a sexual component. Like there are plenty of, of examples throughout history of artists who essentially are kept as kept people Um and so that's it's and and the whole sex worker artisan thing is very close and i think that might have been part of wanting that wanting quote unquote wanting that job when i was younger is that if you look back in history which i was already as a, a t young teenager uh or a tween you you see that all of the great at least female artists that really inspire you are either sibling of someone famous in their field or they're they're kept they're they're supported they have they have these these rich noble people backing them up and that may or may not be because they're sex workers yeah it's not mutually exclusive oh no you know? not at all Nell, uh, you know again out of sca period nell gwynn one of the mistresses of charles ii of england she was a well-known actress in addition to being the king's mistress and she's mm -hmm. not the only one not by a long stretch mm -hmm. yeah and um and so if you look back at history, you know, of course you're going to be inspired by those people. Those people, like, I wanted to be an artist. Like, that's basically me, my way of saying, I want to be an artist and not starve to death in a gutter. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> 
you know, I don't want to be a member, you know, I don't want to be the equivalent of a member of the cast of Rent. No, thank you. Yeah, like, <laughs> that seems rough. I would like to be an artist with a little bit more comfort and security than that. Um, so, yeah, you know, I, you know, sleeping, sleeping indoors and, and, and eating regularly and having clothing appropriate to the, to the weather. Th those are kind of nice things to have. <laughs> well, and I think that even at that young of an age, I still had a very strong sense of the fact that I am not the sort of artist who thrives on adversity. I am the sort of artist who needs like a level of comfort and calm in order to, to do my work. Um, and you can't get that if you're starving on the street, you can't get that. <laughs> yeah. Or if you're working, you know, three part-time minimum wage jobs to, to keep a roof over your head and food on your table, yep. you don't have, you don't have the time yeah. and you don't have the mental bandwidth to make art. Right, right. Wh whatever kind of art it is, whether it's writing, whether it's painting, whether it's drawing, yeah. sculpture, movie making, you know, you name it. Yeah. You know. So, you know. The, yeah. But I do think. I, you I know, do... and, and that was the thing, that was the thing that I, I wanted when I was younger as well was to be, you know, an art, uh, I don't really do a whole lot of visual art, but like a, a wealthy person's paid writer. Yeah. To, to write things for them. Yeah, absolutely. Um, like Shakespeare. And that, you know, like Shakespeare, you know, he was first, you know, an actor and a playwright and the leader of first the Lord Chamber Chamberlain's men. And then I believe they were briefly the Queen's men. And then when King James came to the throne, they became the King's men. Yes. Um, you know, but his, you know, and that was one of the things we talked about in, Shakespeare, in, the, in that Shakespeare class was that, you know, if you look at the, the history plays particularly, they have a really, really hard slant pro tutor. Yeah. That's not a coincidence. No. <laughs> no. You know. The propaganda plays are a big part of English education in general. Um, and Shakespeare kind oh, of yeah. just picked up the torch and ran with it. But he actually was, he was as a child... Um, he, he was indoctrinated with propaganda plays the same as what he ended up writing when he, he delved into his history plays. Um, and I think that's learning more, even if we don't know specifically like what school Shakespeare went to, we know about the kinds of education available to people of his class at that time and digging into, yes. in, digging into that to like, you're talking about minutiae to understand the context of who Shakespeare was and where his ideas come from and where his inspiration came from is to me, one of the most inspiring things about like, I, I love Shakespeare. Anybody listening who thinks Shakespeare was an amalgamation of other people, I think you're wrong. Um, <laughs> I have a strong, almost same here. I have a strong, almost religious faith that um, Shakespeare was one one man, um, because I think it, it's um, I think it's a really beautiful story, and I love stories. So even if it's not true, I believe it because it's a story I love, um, <laughs> which Shakespeare would approve of. Uh, right. That that. He came from a less than um, courtly educated background, and yet he wrote plays that endure in our hearts forever, you know? And I, I, I That's another I really... thing. Go ahead. Go ahead. And I think, I think a lot of people really want to, like, brush that aside because we want to think that, like, elitism is greatness, and it's not. So that's... No, that's why I insist that Shakespeare was real. Like I, I, I will believe it. Like I said, it's a quasi, quasi religious belief, but finding <laughs> out that context 
um, it, it, it is so amazing. And it helps you understand so much about where he was coming from and what was going on in his life. Um, so it's, it's really important. Oh, yes, um, absolutely. Oh, gosh. Where this tangent has gone tangential. Um, <laughs> oh, we have. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, it's, it's okay. At least half my fault. <laughs> no, I think it's at least three quarters my fault because the wine is working. Um, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but so we were talking about accidental cortisol. And I think that that actually is probably something that is just a lot more common for work in general. Um, and that fits with our, like our modern analysis of sex work. A lot of the issues facing it are the same issues facing other work. They're just sort of concentrated, um, in sex work. Um, like strippers can't unionize and they are treated horribly exploitatively. Um, but that's the same for like hairdressers, um, for any independent contractor that rents a space from a, uh, a, an owner of a salon or something like that. Larger business. Yeah. And there are lots of people like that. There are lots of things like that. And, and also (laughs) a lot of the issues with sex work nowadays are issues with the gig economy and the gig economy is basically everyone under the age of 40. So, Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, so those are, those are our labor issues. They're, they're not sex work issues. Like, yes, we need to address them as issues for sex workers because sex workers deserve that attention. But honestly, they're indicative of much broader labor issues that we have in our society. So I think I think that that analysis of the axonal cortisone, it tells us a lot about just in general. Most people at that time were their their employment was because of what their family had or because of what they were fostered to, or just an opportunity at the right time, probably when they were young, and there was not mobility of careers the same way we have now. Like, if you were a vintner, you were a vintner, and it didn't matter if you hated it after 25 years, that's what you were going to die doing. Um, Right. You know, and if you were a carpenter, you were stuck, you know, building things or a wheelwright or, you know, insert any skilled trade here. Yeah. And there, there Um, are, there are records of courtesans who have children who become courtesans. There are also records of courtesans who have children and who raise every bit of money they can from every patron they've ever had to make sure their child is not a courtesan. Um, But that, that takes a monumental amount of effort to lift your child to a different social station in these time periods. Mm -hmm. So that's a, it's a really Mm -hmm. important thing to keep in mind. Just, about labor that following the history of sex workers can teach us. Yes. Yes. And as regards sex workers now and, and, and in period really is that is the, the criminalization yes. of sex work does a whole lot to add to the stigma. Yes. You know, 100%. You know, you're doing something that is illegal, quote unquote, immoral, and you know you're you're on the edges you're on the edges of society never mind that you're doing a job that has been around about as long as people have i mean it's called the oldest profession for a reason absolutely and there really is no good reason why sex workers shouldn't have the same rights as any other worker yeah well and in, you know, in some cultures they have and, the same and, and more and every other and and any other worker, you know, more broadly, deserves more than what they're getting for the most part in in society today. Yeah. You know. 
well, there's the, that whole the entire argument point, over the minimum wage. Yeah, the entire point of capitalism is that you employ people to generate more wealth than you pay them. Like, mm-hmm. that's just the basic equation. You, I mean, you can like it or dislike it, but that's the equation. So, um, yes. So, yeah. And, and the whole concept of the minimum wage, you know, you hear this argument these days that it wasn't ever intended to be anything but a high school student's after school job. And that is not only ridiculous, but ahistorical. Yeah. If you go back to the presidency of, of, of Franklin Delano Roosevelt, when the minimum wage was, was instituted for the first time, he point blank says anybody who works full time should be able to afford a home, you know, yep. safe and in well, in good repair, food, clothing, medical care for himself and his wife and his kids. And of course that was, you know, very heterocentric and very white male oriented. I, you but, know, I don't think. Yeah. But if we meant... stuck with that, we would still be better off than we are now. Absolutely. Absolutely. That, I, and know, just, I want to, I just wanted to point out that, you know, people who were not white men who were working full time, even after the institution of a minimum wage, you know, in the Roosevelt presidency, there were still people that were not being, you know, the rising tide was not lifting all boats. Yes. And that's, and that's actually that some economists think that that's part of our, our, we've like reached a cap of growth. And some economists think that part of the only way to, to throw off that, that limit that we seem to have reached is to let the other people make what they're worth. And um, that's the thing when people start talking about like, oh, well, we can let these people work at a, a lower rate is um, to, historically that has not been a way of slowly raising those people up to making the same amount of money as everyone else. The original reason that like people were like sold on finally letting women in the workforce is that they could pay them less. And look, here we are. Mm-hmm. We're still being paid less. Minorities, disabled people, everyone across the board. And and jobs that used to be highly valuable jobs, like being a clerk, being a teacher, being a secretary, those things used to be really prestigious jobs. Now we employ mostly women in them. We pay them like shit and we act like they're bullshit work. No work is yes. no work is bullshit. I'm getting onto a slightly yes. not this podcast yeah, but, topic, but yeah, not not this podcast topic. But, <laughs> That's okay. It's okay. Know, with, with with sex work, you know, there's no good reason that that should be a, that that should be criminalized. No, and it really and, is not. And the the criminalizing now, of it. Well, the the I think the actual functional reason for the criminalizing of it is that it keeps people who are engaging in it locked in a, a a labor ghetto where they can't bridge out into other jobs. It also gets them put in jail, so that may eliminate their voting rights. So I think keeping it illegal is explicitly about oppressing sex workers um, and people who engage in sex work who at a larger percentage are usually women, gay, or trans. And those are not groups. And or non-white. Yes. Yes. That's another very good point. And those are all groups that our government historically has not been super badass about looking after and in fact maybe has tried uh, no. <laughs> tried explicitly to keep us from from having our fair share our fair share um that you know you kind of have to look at that it's it the stigma and the law and all of that i think it's 
there is no good reason. There is no moral reason. There is no ethical reason. But there sure as hell, I think, is a strategic reason for certain people, certain parts of our society. I'm, Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. It's a subtle little conspiracy and, theory, but come on, the pieces are all there. <laughs> yeah. And back on historical um, sex work, you know, there Thank was... Thank you. There was a, um, like with Catherine Swinford, you know, there was, it was, it was expected or well, not expected, but it was not out of the ordinary for a man in John of Gaunt's position to have taken a mistress, Mm -hmm. but it was very unusual, um, that he in the end married her, um, his he his first wife Blanche died probably of complications of childbirth. He married Constanza of Castile um, because he had aspirations towards the throne of Castile mm-hmm. probably. Um, that didn't work out. Their daughter wound up on the throne, and then when Constanza died, uh, and he and Catherine were having their relationship early in his marriage to Constanza, and then they parted ways after about ten years of of being visibly and noticeably a couple and then after Constanza died he came back to Catherine and proposed marriage and that was this huge huge scandal in the very late 14th century because not only was she you know not only had she been his mistress and had four illegitimate children by him um she wasn't the same social class. She was only a knight's daughter. She was not, mm. you know, a fit mate for the son of a king. And, you know, there was the whole moral thing about, ah, she was, you know, she, you know, she was his, she was his mistress. And some of it was kind of political, mm-hmm. uh, political fuck yous in various directions. Um, but they, they had to clear something with the church and that was that John had been the godfather of her oldest daughter by her husband, Hugh Swinford. And that would ordinarily be an obstacle to marriage. You could yeah, not marry that the count- godparent of your child. That counted as related. Um, it counted as, as too closely yeah, related. Yeah, because God says you're and, related now, so that's related. Yeah, pretty much. But but Blanche, uh, that daughter, had, had since died. Uh, she, had di- she died as a teenager, I think. And... That was part of the way that they got the dispensation from Rome to marry oh, was that, 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 you know, that tie was sort of broken because that, that godchild, his godchild, her daughter had died. Mm. Um, and this, this happened during the reign of Richard II, who was Edward IV's, or Edward III's uh, grandson, the, the son of Edward the Black Prince. Okay. And John of Gaunt's nephew. And... Richard was kind of, he was very young when he came to the throne, just to, to cut him a little slack there. And being young, he was easily influenced by others, and he kind of blew hot and cold um, on his various uncles, who, of course, you know, they were his father's siblings, they were all grown. And at the time that John and Catherine got married, finally, he was very much in John's camp and would pretty much, you know, he was kind of, by letting John marry Catherine, he was kind of telling the rest of his advisors, I'm king and I'll do things the way I damn well please. <laughs> um, 
and he was and he yeah. issued a he issued a royal decree legitimizing Catherine and John's four children without giving them claim to the throne which kind of got conveniently ignored about a hundred years later. <laughs> Listen, when you've got to find an English king, you've got to find an English king. Yeah. And <laughs> Henry Henry VII, the first Tudor king, was the son of Lady Margaret Beaufort, who was descended from one of the Beaufort children, which which was the, the title that John of Gaunt gave over to his children by Catherine. And isn't that, um, isn't, isn't that technically when they switched to technically having an illegitimate kid somewhere in the, in the line? Yes. Okay. I thought so. Yes. I'm, that I know, was when they, I know mostly That was like, when they decided that the king's sperm was sacred and any royal, any, any member of the royal family's <laughs> sperm was sacred and, you know, you know, cue Monty Python at this point. <laughs> yeah, good. Cause I was thinking it. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> Uh, yeah, I'm. I know more the uh, William the Bastard through to um, Crappy John era of of, his, yeah. of English history, <laughs> and, and that's a, that's a fascinating period too. It is. I mean, that's just not been where where I've landed most of. Yeah, no, um, no. So it's interesting. Eleanor of Aquitaine. Oh, oh my god. Yeah. She, oh, that's that's why I picked it. That's why I picked it. I won't lie. Um. So it's interesting hearing the later stuff. Cause like, I know it, I've studied it all. The documentaries go through all of it, but um, the part that I really focus on is the earlier. So it's really interesting talking to someone who specifically focuses on the later and hearing the interaction and the transitions. It's yay history. Mm-hmm. It makes it so fascinating. Oh, I know. I know. I'm such a nerd. <laughs> <laughs> you, I think being in the SCA, but especially being here in our salon means you don't ever have to apologize for being a nerd. Because True. that is, we're all nerds here. That's what makes us amazing. Yeah, that's what makes and, us amazing. That's, that's, that's one of the things that I really, really love about the SCA is that at its best, we are a collection of nerds encouraging each other to go be nerdy. Yes. And I love that part. <laughs> I fucking love that part. It, it, it is. It, it's one of, I think it is one of the best parts. And I think if we can survive, it will be because of that among other good traits. I I have some faith. I don't think it's going to be an if. I think it's going to be rough, but I think we will absolutely survive. Yeah. And I do think you're right. I just don't want to be, I don't want to be arrogant and say, yes, absolutely. The SCA will be around, you know, you know long after I have shuffled off this mortal coil. Court the ire of the gods. <laughs> I, I understand. I understand. Right. So, okay. <laughs> once again, we have like made the perfect segue into what is your dream? Why do you play? Why do you play in this lovely, lovely game of ours? Um, part of it is the original stated intent of the SCA to recreate the best parts of the world before 1600 CE. Um, I am a giant nerd. I have always been one. I got picked on it, picked on for it for being uh, for being so nerdy and bookish as a child. And as I got older, I got a much greater amount of fuck you if you don't like that. I like to read, you know go dislike me somewhere else. <laughs> and <laughs> as I, as I said before about the Laura Ingalls Wilder things, I've always enjoyed seeing how to do things the old fashioned way. Yeah. How to cook the old fashioned way, how to make clothing the old fashioned way, you know, how to do hair the old fashioned way. Uh, part of the reason I grew my hair long was to be able to at least mimic period hairstyles. Holler. um you know jewelry and and you know covering you know 
clothing and, and, and all of this, you know, it's just, it fascinates me. And I also, you know, it is, it is a huge, huge cliche, but studying history is important. Yes. You need to see, you know, people in general, so society in general needs to have that context and they need to understand that there's nothing new under the sun that people have done, you know, patterns have played out yes. repeatedly over, over the course of time in multiple places in multiple times. And if you don't understand that you're going to fall for a lot of bullshit. I feel like it's like walking in to like the last 15 minutes of a movie and then mm-hmm. being like, well, I know everything about this movie that I need to know now. That is not yeah, true. And, and generally not true. That's generally not going to work for most movies. Um, and where and was we're, I going with that? I don't know, but we're definitely at a point right now where understanding history is very important to understanding our future. Um, and maybe that's always the case. I haven't lived through all of history, but I can tell you that right now for sure. And and I think, I think it holds true that it probably has always been the case. You know, if you look at, um, you know, middle-aged and older adults complaining about kids these days. Oh, God. <laughs> there are historical examples of that galore, if you just look. You know, oh, yeah. There's... I think I think Cicero griped about it at one point. Yeah, there's you know, there's or... one about kids and their gambling and their ruffled socks and and not just that. Yeah. Every form new form of media is going to ruin every old form of media. Like when newspapers came out, people were like, "No one's going to have anything to talk to about anymore." When novels came out, people were like, "This is it. This is the end of human communication. We have novels now." And it's like, listen, yeah. it hasn't worked so far. We're going to be fine. The kids are okay. We're going to be fine. Right. Or like people that are screaming about children using their laptops and tablets to do their homework. Sounds like people screaming about, you know, chalk slates versus paper. Yeah. 100%. (laughs) 100%. It's just people are people and there are things, there are patterns that people engage in over time. Listen. And they play out maybe slightly differently. But the the general pattern plays out again and again and again. Abacuses are just a trend. We're going to stick with wax tablets all the way. (laughs) Right? (laughs) (laughs) So So epic nerdery. I think epic nerdery is a good way to sum that up. And I am with you 100% for (laughs) epic nerdery being a big part of why I participate. Um, And another thing that... I value in the SCA and a lot of the people that I, I like to spend my time with in the SCA in whatever context are the work hard, play hard types. Yeah. You know, the, the people who will show up at an event and even if they weren't officially on the event staff, they'll pitch in to help do, you know, whatever task needs doing mm-hmm. because if everybody pitches in and helps out to the best of their abilities, that means after sundown, we can all relax and have fun. 100%. Yes. And that's that's a um, good event. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. And another thing, one of my, I mean, there are a number of stated values of the SCA. I think the most important one is courtesy. 
Yes. Um, I think everything stems from courtesy, and courtesy is essentially being considerate of other people. You know, the there are worse tenets by which to live your life than don't be an asshole. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and when you're an asshole accidentally, own it, apologize, learn from it, do better. Try not to be an asshole in that specific way going forward. Um, you know, I don't expect anybody to be perfect. Uh, you know, I sometimes do myself, but then I'm like, no, you, no, behave. <laughs> yeah, nobody. But, that's not that's not a, a legitimate thing to expect of anyone. No, it's not. People are going to screw up, and I think there's there's a difference between leaving space for people to screw up and learn from it and go do better going forward and allowing people to be jerks and not accepting any accountability for having screwed up, you know, and that's, that's, I think a lot of the problem of where we are as a society right now is we have, we have missing stairs Yes. and we need to do something about that. Yes. And and I think there that's are, a big part there of are certain... what the courtesans do, like our sort of mm-hmm. ulterior motive. Yes, is to is to kind of shine some light on those stairs and either get them repaired or install an elevator. Ooh, elevators. <laughs> elevators are very accessible. Um, I like elevators. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, you know, and I think if we're going to progress as an organization we have to own that we've screwed up a number of things and we need to work on including more people yeah um and welcoming more people and rejecting up to and including you know revocation and denial people who are being intentionally discriminatory yeah you know well it's not part of our core values it's not part of our core values to be a racist jerk it's not part of our core values to be a sexist jerk yeah you know that is not courteous yeah that is anti-courteous yeah absolutely (laughs) absolutely and you know and another thing and, and this is something that hits me a little more personally is we need to be inclusive of people with disabilities. Yeah. Um, I am actually legally disabled, and recently I my physical state has deteriorated to the point that I need a cane to walk, which makes a lot yeah. of event sites really difficult. You know, I, I really, really wanted to go to the Corsair's Heart this year, which was a combination of Castlemere's Cutlasses and Corsairs event and Anne Crostra's St. Valentine's Day event um, because Anne Crostra is moving an event because St. Valentine's Day winds up being way, way, way too close to the Hogtown Medieval Fair. Yeah. And that, because that does take place in Gainesville and that is Anne Crostra's domain, they are heavily involved in it and they just don't have the energy to put on another event, right. you know, three weeks or a month later. Understandably. Um, and so we, we combined, you know, and, and Gainesville and Jacksonville are mm, hour and a half drive apart. Mm-hmm. So depending on where you are in, in each city. So we kind of joined forces for that. And I wanted to go to that because, A, it sounded like a lot of fun. 
be St. Valentine's Day is actually my anniversary event, and I have not made another St. Valentine's Day since my first event ever. Um, but the site was Camp Immokalee, and the, the the ground there is so sandy and so soft, I was afraid I would not be able to walk. Yeah. I would, you know, I would fall and hurt myself, and I don't need to do that. I'm 43. I don't bounce back as fast as I used to. Yeah. And, you know, I if... If I were ever to win some massive lottery prize or something and have a whole crap ton of money um, to play with, one of the things that I would do with it would be to build an event site. And I would like to have it looking like a castle as much as possible. But, you know, mobility access accessible. Yeah. You know elevators for people that need a wheelchair or a walker or a cane and don't want to walk up i mean you can walk upstairs with a cane it's very tiring we should have a drawbridge a drawbridge that's a ramp yes a drawbridge that's a ramp and you could make space if you chose the if you chose the real estate correctly you could make space for those who like to camp and do things you know as yeah the, that enchanted ground concept. You could make space for that on this site, and there would be space for people who just want to have a mundane tent. And I'm thinking that my castle would have to have, you know, guest rooms for people who would rather or physically need to sleep in a cabin bed, you know, what we do currently is a cabin bed. Yeah. Um, rather than trying to pitch a tent of whatever type, whether it be, you know, modern or, or period style. Um you know, that, that is one thing that I would definitely, that is, you know, that is on my, my, if I ever won the lottery list to do is to build a beautiful and accessible and comfortable for everyone event site like that. I'm on board. If, if, <laughs> when you come into a large <laughs> amount of money, I will be here to help you out with that. <laughs> Awesome. I, I have a feeling I would not be short of volunteers to help me plan this puppy. <laughs> no, no, not at all. I you know, I think there's a I lot would, of people. I would, would be, be getting. I would be getting with people like uh, Mistress Jeanette and um, oh, what the heck is her name? Her Monday name is Chrissy. Oh, does yes. A lot of feet. Eva. Um, is it Eva? No, yeah. I'm thinking of Eva? a different one. No. Um... It's all right. I actually helped. Her. I actually helped her serve a feast a few years <laughs> ago, but anyway, I, w- I would be, you know, leaning on the people I know who have, fe- who have been feast stewards and leaning on the people I know who have been autocrats and leaning on the people I know who have been reservation stewards and sanitation stewards and, you know, constables for events and constables for the kingdom at large to make this work as well as it can for everyone. That, that would, that's like, and then, you know, of course, it would have to be under something separate and not the SCA, but I'd have to create some kind of trust where it was always available to the SCA, but not actually technically SCA property and all that legal, all that legal claptrap. <laughs> well, you know, our king is an IRS lawyer. I think he might be able to help. I had gotten that impression from what he had said about the gift thing. Yeah. I was like, he must, he must do something mundanely that makes that I will a, admit, a, a concern in down here in trimaris our group of courtesans have the tendency or have in the past call each other fabulous hookers 
quite a bit. <laughs> and we were given a little bit of a talking to, not in a shitty way, listeners, don't raise pitchforks for us. It was quite all right. Um, but we were, we were, it was pointed out to us that perhaps for the good of the guild, at least while we have an IRS tax lawyer on the throne, if we did not refer to ourselves using slang for an illegal activity. <laughs> and I said, that's a good point. And then my immediate question was, if we translate it into Latin, is it okay? <laughs> Answer, <laughs> yes. So we are still, <laughs> we're, we're actually, the word we use is actually even worse now um, than hooker because it's probably closer to like, fuck bag. It's pretty bad. <laughs> Latin, Latin is good for that. Latin. Yeah. <laughs> So we now... That's one of the things I love about Latin and about Shakespeare is everybody thinks both of those are so prim and proper. Right. And if you study them... No. uh, No. Oh, no. (laughs) No. Well, trust me, all of my students have been properly traumatized by the intense sexuality of Shakespeare, but... That's another thing. But so, it's, so it's all puns. It's, it's wall to wall puns. And dictates. it is, it really, really it is. is. <laughs> um, but so uh, with my tongue in your tail, anyways. Um, so now we're fabulosa scorta, which means <laughs> fabulous fuck bags. Probably it's scorta is a Latin word that references the, the skin or the hide of an animal, but it was also used as a slang term for prostitute. So, it's a pretty bad one. <laughs> yeah, but... <laughs> and what, what cracks me up about that is that a lot of our modern terms, our modern medical terms uh-huh. for genitalia, uh-huh. were Latin slang. Yes, 100%. The word vagina uh-huh. actually originally referred to the sheath of a sword. Yeah, it was the proper name for a vagina um, because this, the dirty name for a vagina was kunis. Which is where yeah. we get cunt, which is still my favorite word. But um <laughs> and, but yeah. you know, canillingus. <laughs> yes. But so vagina was the more acceptable one because it was a euphemism. It wasn't actually the word yes. for the thing. It was a euphemism for the thing. And I think that starts the trend because through all throughout medieval history there they have all those silly names for it that are all euphemisms. Yes, yes. And it, that continues today, you know. People have all kinds of ridiculous ridiculous terms in modern English, and I'm pretty sure pretty much every other modern language, um, for, you know, their, their, their genitalia and any secondary sex characteristic type. Parts. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Uh, there's a great timeline of the history of slang for genitalia that I will, I will do my best to remember to include in the show notes for this because it's just fantastic. And it goes back to like (laughs) the female one goes back to 1200 and the male one goes back to 1400. So they, they go back to within our time period and they have some very amusing words for genitalia. So, (laughs) (laughs) so we have some more questions down here about your persona um, that I want to get okay. into. So sure. why, why does Catherine choose sex work? What does she get out of it? What's in it for her? Or more broadly, um, why do people? Well, money, you know, even yeah. though, even though in late 14th century London, London, you're looking at more of a feudal economy than a cap, than a strictly speaking, capitalistic economy. Money still talks. Yeah, absolutely. And, being able to 
have enough money to make sure that she and her household are, you know, housed and clothed and fed and, you know, generally taken care of, that's, that's a big, that's a big motivator for a lot of people, you know, for Catherine, for people now. Yeah. Think about how many people you know, go to jobs they hate because they're, they're supporting their family. They're supporting people yeah, they love or hobbies or hobbies they love. Yes. Or, you know, a number of people who do jobs that they don't hate, but they don't love. Yeah. Um, one of my, one of my favorite online friends is by profession, a chemist. And she, she has her master's degree in chemistry and she decided not to pursue any further education. She could have gone on and gotten her doctorate and been a research chemist or a chemistry professor or whatever, but she decided she didn't really, she wasn't really interested enough to do that, but she does it for her job. But the job is to fund, you know, her fan fiction writing and her original writing and her um, absolutely freaking epic travel stuff. Oh my gosh. She does yeah. the coolest traveling things. You know, she's, she's made it a personal bucket list item to hit every single national park or every national park in the United States that she can manage to hit. Oh, that's amazing. I love it. And she's, she's checked off a bunch of them already. And, you know, there's these fabulous pictures of her, you know, She's been to the Grand Canyon. She's been to... I don't know if she's been to Yosemite or not. Um, she's been to Badlands. Um, she's been to the Great Smoky Mountains. Um, she lives in Ohio, and there are a couple of really really cool yeah. um, state parks around there that she goes hiking on and posts all these beautiful pictures of, of you know, foliage and, and hills. And yeah. And I mean, little there, springs there and are... waterfalls. And you know, yeah. And she's like, you know, I you know, I enjoy my job. I don't hate it, but it's not my passion in life and that's okay. Yeah. And there are um we we in America have a real tendency to define people by whatever their job is, but that's really not who people are. And so we do not this, usually no. We do the same thing with with sex work. And yes, there are people who love sex work and would choose it over other jobs if they had the choice. But there are other people who are more like your office worker or your your normal American for lack of a better way of putting it, who doesn't hate their job, but they don't necessarily think it's the best job ever, but it it pays the bills and it gets things done and it is what it needs to be. So, yes. And Whereas we, uh, we paint sex work almost exclusively as like the lowest, like, and lowest, but like the lowest um, financial bracket of sex work where people are really engaging in, in it out of desperation. Yes. Yes. And honestly, people are engaging in a lot of other jobs that are more legal. Out of desperation. No less desperate. Yeah, absolutely. You know, 100%. You know, do you think anybody goes to work for Walmart and thinks that's their dream job? Hell no. No, but there are people who who in, enjoy it as part of contributing to a whole. Like, I've met people who weren't particularly unhappy working at Walmart. No, yeah, yeah. No, I don't. And, and some people but, yeah. really enjoy customer service work. They're very sociable, and, and that's, you know, yep. waiting tables or working at Walmart or, you know, working at the grocery store or right. you know, insert customer service job here is fun for them because they get to talk to, you know, yeah. 400 but people every day. If you sat down like the wait staff at in any given shift at a restaurant and you were like, who has this job because you love this job? Some people would say yes. Who has this job because it pays your bills? Okay. Who has this job because it's that the is... o- only job you could get? And there's going to be a mix. Yeah. There's going to be a mix of all. Yeah. So sex work is no different. Work is work. Sex work is yes. no different. 
So yeah. And there, um, part of part of Catherine's reason for for choosing to become the nobleman's mistress is a concept that I saw illustrated in a recent interview of the actor Lucy Liu, and she said something that her her father had told her to do her best to get a fuck you fund enough money that she could pick and choose the the roles she takes in movies Mm -hmm. and and if somebody wants her to take a role that she doesn't want to take she has this money she has enough money that she can say fuck you (laughs) and and i just flipped the yeah my webcam the bird (laughs) yeah i love that i love that you know the 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 fuck you money yeah because you know the the i i can i don't need your stinking stupid movie role because i have enough money that i can i can decline and that's the thing that most people don't have like most people are really stuck in their job because that's their only financial you know source and and they don't have that fucking no and we're all working paycheck to paycheck nobody has savings anymore we're all in debt so you know yeah the fuck the pile of fuck you money is an important thing and it's not just in a sex work or an entertainer, you know, context, um, where your body is literally on the line, you know, your body is literally always on the line because it's your life. You're selling away parts of your life. And if someone wants you to do something you don't want to do, you should be able to be like, fuck you. No. And actually just to sidetrack slightly with what we were talking about before, it really bothers me, um, sort of like the regression back to a feudal attitude towards labor that we're having. Um, because you're not doing your boss a favor by doing a job like they're they're I'm sorry they are not doing you a favor by giving you a job like if the guy yeah. if the guy who runs the milkshake stand has no staff guess how much money he makes from milkshakes a fr- zippo zippo <laughs> or or, a f- or whatever he can right whatever he can do just running it by a himself. tiny fraction of what he can do so your boss is not doing you a favor by giving you a job and and with all this talk about job creators and stuff like that i really i really don't like that because jobs exist we don't need job creators like jobs exist things need to get done there are just people mm-hmm. who make a profit off of them and provide a paycheck for them. That is a fraction, of course, of the profit that they make off of your labor. So, yes. And I don't I really don't like going back to this futile idea that, um, you know, oh, we all owe a lot to the Lord of the Manor for employing us in his fields. And we don't ask questions. We just get our meals and we don't ask for more. You know, I'm really not OK yeah. with that. We had we had a whole giant plague in Europe. And years of battles over over the rights of serfs so that we could have work and labor as a separate thing from just, you know, taking what you're given and your station in life. Um, so it bugs me. Okay, tangent aside. Hey, listeners, if you really just can't take it and you'd like to reach out and support some of your uh, brothers, sisters, and non-binary siblings and friends out there in the world, maybe that you haven't met yet, who need your help fighting for their reproductive rights and freedom right now more than ever before in your life, we're going to be providing you some resources for that. So today we have two uh, groups in Georgia. These are coming from people who are actually on the ground in these areas um, who are giving us advice for who we should be supporting and who is actually supporting them. So if you would like to help people in Georgia, 
please visit https colon slash slash prochoicegeorgia.org. That is Narrell Prochoice Georgia. Uh, you can also call them at 202 973 3000. They will accept your donations, and if you can help them in any way on the ground, they will tell you how they can help um, use your help. Also suggested to us is the Handmade Coalition, which you can find at https colon slash slash handmadecoalition.org. And I'm going to spell that for you. It's H A N D, I'm sorry, H A N D M A I D C O A L I T I O U. Oh my goodness, why it helped me. H A N D M A I D C O A L I T I O N dot O R G. There we go, finally. Okay, so if you have even five bucks to spare to help your, um, your fellow humans in Georgia protect their rights and their freedoms, which are human rights and freedoms, uh, there are some suggestions for you. We'll have more coming in the future from Alabama, Missouri, and anywhere else we need to. Thanks for being awesome. And also another thing about the, the stigmatization of sex work is us, you know, say a full service sex worker is not doing anything more strenuous than someone who is working in a warehouse. They are making yeah. money off of the effort of their body. It's just a different yeah. type of effort. Yeah. Uh, and but, I mean, you know, the warehouse, you... the warehouse worker is doing a legal job and the sex worker is in perpetual fear of being arrested. Yeah. And, Why? but That's I mean, stupid. and, and, and a, a warehouse worker faces the, the possibility of injury on the job that may be life threatening, that mm-hmm. may be cause a lifelong um, disability like those things happen. Oh, people yeah. um, people get herniated discs and things like that from working in warehouses and are never able to achieve the same level of physicality again. So there's risk. There's risk in every job. Oh, and absolutely. and and to just focus on those things with sex work and not other forms of work is is part of the stigma. So it, it's it's like wearing blinders about one specific type of, of labor. Yes. Yes. So what sorts of, we kind of talked, touched on this a little, so we, we don't need to, you know, belabor anything we've already talked about, but what sorts of options were available for women who, who needed or wanted to be financially independent, to have that fuck you fund? Well, there were, there were two professions that were so common that the, the names for them have, have shifted meaning a little bit in modern English, but uh, the, the surname Brewster which is a fairly common English language surname, actually originally referred to a woman who brewed beer and sold it. Interesting. Um, the S-T-E-R ending meant that you were... It, it, it was when, when surnames that were uh, occupation-derived started to, started to be a thing, like Baker or mason or cooper or farmer okay. you know you would see er was the, was the male ending and ster was the female ending which you also get baxter which is female baker oh that's very interesting um yeah so but, but we don't Brewster's... have like smith smithster no because not really that, that fell out of lady usage. smiths are pr- okay 
the that that kind of fell out of usage. Um, but Bruce, you know, a, a woman could support herself by brewing and selling ale. Yeah. Another woman, another thing that a woman could do to support herself would be to spin cloth, spin, okay. you know, spinster. wool. Yeah, spinster, and that came to mean, you know, kind. It, it came to have this old maid connotation of this woman who, you know, was unnatural and dried up and and ugly and horrible because she couldn't get a husband, so she she, yes, you know, that, that whole thing. And, yes. You know, in case think... the wandering room, wandering room, want. Oh gosh, the wine is working. In case <laughs> that wandering womb propaganda doesn't scare you into settling down and having kids, maybe the stigma of turning into an old spinster will make you do it. Yeah, and you know, I think a lot of women in, you know, in medieval Europe may have seen that, and and if they were for whatever reason not inclined to marry a man. They were like, hey, you know, that's a way I can make my own way in the world and not have to put up with a husband. And not, you know, no offense to guys, marriage can be really wonderful. Um, yes. But it's not for but everyone. It, yeah, it's not. And if it's your only path to financial stability in the world, like that is a rough, yes. that is a rough life. Absolutely. Um, because it may not be for you. And you know what? Even if it is for you, how many things that you like do you like when you're forced to do them with yeah. no choices? Like, so even if getting married and having like 80 kids is like your jam, if you don't have other options, somehow it becomes a little less jammy. Yeah. Yeah. It's like I was um, I was sewing a project for a friend and they offered to if I wanted to make more of that particular item, sell it for me. And I'm like, no, if it becomes a, you know, right now it's fun. If it becomes yeah. a job, then it's, it's not going to be anywhere near as much fun as yeah. it is when I'm just doing it for a friend for, for the hell of it. Yeah. Um, but, you know, so you got a lot of women who were what we would now term lesbian or gay women who would become who would who would seek out those lines of work, especially in the merchant class, where the upward social mobility was not quite it you know, wasn't really there, but you could you know if if your father was say a blacksmith and you wanted to be you know and you're a girl and you decided you wanted to be a spinster, you could find a spinster and become her apprentice, just like. You know, your brother, if he didn't want to become a blacksmith, he would rather become, I don't know, a tanner, a leather worker. He could go apprentice to the tanner and, you know, maybe one of the tanner's sons wanted to be a blacksmith and goes and apprentice, you know, goes and becomes an apprentice to your dad. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that kind of thing happened a good bit. And in English law, I'm not real, I'm not, I'm not anywhere near an expert on continental European law, but in English law... A never married woman had a lot more rights than a married woman. And yeah. a widow had a lot more rights than a married woman. Um, you know, yeah. a, a woman who had never been married could own property in her own right. And a widow could own property in her own right. And that's where Catherine finds herself. She's widowed. You know, she had an, an, an at least agreeable to her marriage that ended in tragedy very, very quickly. And so she's a widow. She can own this shop in her own name if she marries again. And, you know, the 
the dearth of prospects there probably also played into this. If she marries again, she has to turn over all of her material assets to her husband. And yeah. this is her dad's this is her dad's wine shop. She grew up in this place. Do you think she's going to be real keen on on just handing that over to some other some other person? Yeah, maybe not so much. Yeah. Um. And so by by remaining a widow and not remarrying, she keeps what she already owns. Right. And taking she doesn't have to give anything up. Yeah, and taking the patron gives her that little extra bit of fuck you money. Or if you know if the market varied for some reason, there was a bad bad year for grape for wine growing grapes. You know, for, for wine grape growing. You know, she had that little extra cushion of financial security. With, or if they uh, started putting a, I don't, I don't think it happened in period. But if they started putting a tax on windows, yeah. I know that happened. I know that happened in English history. I think it's just um, Georgian. I think it's Georgian. Yeah, uh, it was a little post post SCA period, but yeah, and or you know. Anything. The random anything, things anything that happen. Will, yeah, you know, yeah. You know, the economy does weird things sometimes. War screws up trade. You know, shit happens. <laughs> it just does. Yeah. So, so aside from the supplemental income, what does sex work offer your persona that other types of work available to women in the in that time period wouldn't have? Well, the protection for one thing. The having a patron who is of a higher social class and of greater financial means than she is kind of means that she's got somebody standing behind her saying, you know, go ahead and fuck up her shit. I dare you. I will fuck up your shit so bad that your, you know, ancestors and descendants to the nth generation will, will feel, you know, her, her patrons behind her. Like, you know, this, this woman is under my protection fuck with her, you fuck with me. Right. And that's going to chase off a lot of people that might have had any any kind of ill intent, you know, want to rob the wine shop, you know, want to kidnap her daughter and marry her, whatever. Yeah. You know, she's got that, she's got want that. Want to try to, yeah, maneuver her into some sort of manipulative situation. Right, exactly. She's She's got that, that noble, that wealthy nobleman behind her, and people are going to know that and they're going to think you probably better find another. I target. don't know. <laughs> yeah. Let's just, let's move on. And, um, and we also hit on this earlier companionship and having her meet her needs met. You yeah. Know, I, I human needs, human, human needs, needs. Um, sexual needs, companion, you know, just friendship to my way. I, like I said, I really haven't fleshed out Catherine's patron that much, but I cannot imagine her as I have her in my head now agreeing to be the mistress of a man she didn't like. Yeah. You know, I, I think that at they, least in some way, at least in some way, I I'm thinking that probably they met because he was a patron of her shop. He bought, he was buying wine. From oh her shop. yeah. And maybe he had they, a really good taste just right, again and, and again. And they get, and she's they, like, they get to know each other. You notice they things. Get to, they get to, you know, they get to chit chatting the way it, the way it works, the way it has worked throughout time. Oh my gosh. I totally just imagined that he's someone who, like, she recognizes, has a special appreciation for, like, the grapes and the wine and the vintages that exactly. someone outside the uh, someone outside the field normally doesn't have. So she's like, you recognize good yes. things. And he's like, you're yes. a good thing. Wow. 
Yeah, exactly. Maybe not and, that poorly indirect, but yeah. No, but but you know that would be kind of the condensed version of what happens. Um, yes. Another part of Catherine's <laughs> backstory is that her mother was the daughter of um, of a family who grew wine grapes in Bordeaux, which at now that's part of France. At the time, that was English territory, and Catherine's yeah. father had traveled there to buy wine from his future in-laws, fell in love with their daughter, married her, brought her home to England. She had oh. a stillborn son, Catherine, and then died in childbirth of another stillborn son, um, which is incredibly tragic and sad, and I know it's such a downer, but it happened a lot. You know, yeah. one of the ways that you can get an idea of when any noble woman or queen was pregnant at any given point in history, especially in the medieval period, she wrote her will. Yeah. Because yeah. there was a, a seriously, seriously non-trivial chance of her dying in childbirth or shortly thereafter from complications. Yeah. And for and... anybody out there who might be listening and think that we should go back, back into the past of reproductive health, let's not. <laughs> and that's why. Yeah. <laughs> that's why and if you and it's it's not even like it's ancient history no it's really you not know, if you go to if you walk through a graveyard that has graves older you know of people who died before about 1950 mm -hmm. you will see a yeah. lot of children's graves where they died of yes you know everything or preventable everything. diseases preventable diseases just, you know when yeah when when vaccinations came to be a thing, all of a sudden the the child mortality rate plunged, and that's a good thing. We get you know fewer dead kids, and when you got better obstetrical practices, better cleanliness around you know the birth process and the you know medically keeping track of the pregnancy, you got a, a lot fewer women dying in childbirth or shortly thereafter. Yep. You know if you if you go to a graveyard that's yeah, even just right there. a couple hundred years old, you'll see a man's grave with like three wives beside him because yeah. the first two died in childbirth. Or and it's, yeah, it's not because he was some shitty guy. Like no, it's because it's just, they died. They, they yeah. just died. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I actually, I'm, I'm working on uh, like a spreadsheet that you can put in and then like, it'll figure out your family for you with statistics, like statistical um, infant mortality rates and things like that. Um, and one of the things is like, at what rate do wives die in childbirth? Like how many moms did you have? Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and, that, and, and so thing. far the, yeah, okay. the, I was just saying the ones I've, of the, of the personas that I've rolled out, um, none of them, none of them have grown up with the same mother that is their biological mother, just because the odds are not there. The, yeah. the odds just aren't there. And one of, the, one of the interesting things that I, I can't remember when I learned this. I think it was when I was still doing my degree. Um, if you look at the historical records, women who survived long enough to reach menopause lived about as long as modern women do. Mm -hmm. um, most of that documentation is from convents because, of course, the nuns, we're not having sex, or at least usually we're not having sex. Of course, there were exceptions. They were mostly not having procreative sex. Yes. Um, and they and if lived... they were, yeah, 
and they, they were the women menopause and lived to be 70 80 90 years old yeah that's that's very accurate and you know or you could i grew up in the Aquitaine. i grew up in the midwest so like the pioneer history is close mm-hmm. um and and that's a thing that like possibly it's a, a a side effect of of being brought up in as mentioned before a, a special subculture of humans that are pretty accepting and talk about a lot of things but um i've always been just very aware of that and i actually i was i was at summer camp and we did like a storytelling activity where we went out to the cemetery and we looked at gravestones and then we were supposed to make up stories about the people and i had a much better understanding about history and life and history and also mortality in history and so I had this whole story about this woman who like died giving childbirth and my counselor literally wept (laughs) because I was just like so into this story and all these little details and made my person seem really real but she was like she's this beautiful story she wrote a whole letter to my mom about it so yeah (laughs) teach your kids history it's important absolutely absolutely Um, (laughs) you know and we already mentioned Eleanor of Aquitaine Yes, she, she lived to to reach menopause and was either eighty two or eighty four when she died. Her yeah. exact year of birth is not known, but she right. was not on the sunny side of eighty when she died, and that was fairly unusual at that time, especially yeah. for a woman who had as many children as she had. She had a bunch of kids, right? And... She had a bunch of kids. She had um, a bunch of sons. She had a bunch of daughters. She had a bunch of kids that miscarried or were stillborn because that was also a lot more normal then. Um, a lot of kids that didn't live to adulthood. And then other kids that lived to adulthood, a bunch of them still died because going around and fighting wars is not a risk-free activity. You know? Yeah, that, that's kind of a good way to come down with a bad case of dead. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So... so how do you express that? Uh, how do you express all of this persona story in the way that you play your persona? What sorts of things do you do at events or for courtesan persona or even just planning? I'm still kind of in the planning stage because I haven't really made it to an event since I made this decision. I'm going to try to make TRU in June uh, since it's near, it's fairly nearby and it's a day uh, event. Yeah. Um, but Trimaris Royal University for anybody outside of Kingdom. Um, yes. But one of the things that I, I'm going to going to roll with in terms of playing Catherine as a courtesan is I kind of screwed up when I cut a lot of my mm. garb for Catherine and I made the necklines too low. Ah, okay. Um, a, 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 a historically proper, low. Show off the goods. A historically low. Um, and some of that is, is how I dress in mundane life. I'm... The boob fairy didn't skip me. <laughs> <laughs> And I am not a skinny woman and really never have been. And so a lot of times I will dress to play up my bust so that people don't look at at my my tummy and my backside. (laughs) You know, tits on a platter gets a lot of attention in garb and out. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I'm continually jealous because the boob fairy did. She like she like sort of stopped for coffee, but she didn't stay the night. Let's just say that. (laughs) My my mom has that problem, too. So, Yeah. yeah, this is. My my physical build comes from my biological father's side of the family, and we all we all look like linebackers, and the women all have big old boobs and childbearing hips. It is what it yeah, is. Yeah, I I just ended up I just ended up proportionally small, like 
And so it's fine, but that does mean I technically have the the smallest breasts of anyone in my family for generations. <laughs> At least you're proportionate, though. That makes that makes clothes shopping a whole lot easier and clothes sewing a whole lot easier. It it can, and my back is thankful. So there's that. Yes. So um. Yeah. <laughs> your back and your it, neck would not thank you for D cups. They they really yeah, just don't. <laughs> no, no, and that is it. Like there's no there's not a C cup. Like I'm I'm smaller by two cup sizes than everyone else in my family because I'm just <laughs> midgety, just midgety. <laughs> <laughs> So I would have, I would have D's or double D's if I had gotten the, the mom jeans. Um, <laughs> and that'd be bad. So but um, anyway, the, the, the necklines are cut lower than they really, really yeah. would have been for a respectable merchant and, lady. They would have, would have really come more, a good deal closer to the collarbone. Um, but and fabric choice, the I'm sure. Uh, well, and they're cut the way they're cut. So that's the fabric. I honestly have gone a little, I, I was not super authentic when I originally designed my garb because Catherine being in London in the late 14th century would have probably mostly worn wool dresses with linen, with linen undergarments, a linen shift um, under the dress. But wool is a little toasty in Florida. And yes, I, I've got to be really, really picky about the weave of wool or it makes me itch. It's not like I'm allergic, allergic to it. Because I can wear like gabardine, but like the the fuzzier wool yeah. weaves, they they make my skin go haywire, and I, I that's not my idea of a good time at an event. Um, I remember reading when I first started in the SCA, somebody said that they didn't wear their glasses when they were in persona, and yeah, they couldn't really see very clearly, but it it increased the period look, and I'm like, I am never going to be that dedicated. I'm like, I, if I, if I could ever afford it, I might buy contact lenses and wear contact lenses in persona yep. because while they are far less period than glasses, they also are far less apparent. <laughs> you know, you got to be real up close and personal with my eyeballs to notice that they're there. But if I don't wear my glasses, I get a gnarly eye strain headache and that's going to a make me yeah, extremely uncomfortable I... and b extremely unpleasant to be around because I will be a grouchy pain in the ass. <laughs> Right, right. That's that makes nobody's sense. Idea well, I, I, I don't feel like, um, you know, our own comfort should be limited. Like when the guys fight, they wear sweatpants and stuff. So you yeah, know, yeah. Let's, most of comfort. them are not wearing. Most of them are not wearing period undergarments under their armor. Ooh, no. Oh, oh no. My partner's never even asked me what period men's undergarments look like. So I, I know a few guys <laughs> who have had gambesons, period gambesons made to go under their, their torso armor. But he does have that, yeah. Under that they're wearing a t shirt. Yes. You know? <laughs> and that yeah, that's it that's exa- yes, that is a perfect description of my boy when he fights. Is he has he has a period gambeson. It's appropriate for his time period. We made it together. It's uh good colors, it's our shire colors, everything. But um no. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> He's got the gambas on. <clears throat> he has period pants, but they're um, they're not a really good period fabric because he would he's gonna tear them up. So why? So, yeah. Um, and I yeah. feel like comfort. Yeah. You know, you've got to fit your comfort to go. Yeah, you have to fit your comfort to the activity you're gonna be involved in. And if that activity is being outside in Trimaris, well, that's an activity you fit your comfort level to. Right. So my. My, my dresses are linen. I have cotton underdresses and I'm probably going to make some linen underdresses at some point. And my, my first sideless surcoat I actually bought from someone else um, because she had cut it for herself and missed up, messed up the measurements. 
and she had made it too wide for her shoulders and too narrow for her hips. And I kind of looked at her and I'm like, well, you know what? I've got wider shoulders and narrower hips than you. Can I try it on? She's like, sure. So I slipped it on. It fit me almost exactly the way it needs to. And I just bought it from her. And that one is velveteen, cotton velvet, which is pretty toasty. <laughs> Yeah, that, that's kind of my winter. Sh- that's kind of my winter sideless. Um, I feel. I feel like. I feel like I need to fan myself just hearing about yeah. that. <laughs> um, and so I made a linen sideless surcoat um, using the using the velveteen one as a pattern. I made a linen mm-hmm. one because so I'm basically in a layer of cotton and two layers of linen on my body, and then I'm still covering my hair. That's not so bad. I'm still covering yeah. my hair in persona because, for one thing, 14th century women would not have walked out of the house no. with their head uncovered for a number of reasons. And one of them... You might want to try some rayon. I might. I might. But one of the other things for me personally <laughs> is it's a hell of a lot cooler to be outside in Trimeris with a white or natural colored linen or cotton over my head than yes. to have the sun beating down on my thick, dark hair. Yes, that's I, I wear I wear veils quite regularly and people are like, How can you wear that in this heat? And I'm like, How can you not wear that exactly, in this heat? Exactly. It's you know, it's like the whole con- the whole concept yeah. of lighter colors reflect the sun and darker colors absorb it and my hair is naturally very dark brown and that's going to absorb the hell out of some sunlight. I'ma throw some unbleached muslin over my head. <laughs> Yeah, or even like I wear a red veil a lot for the known world mm-hmm. courtesans, and even the red veil I feel cooler because I'm in the shade. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, that's what a veil is. It's it portable shade. It's quite nice um, if you're if you're like if that fits your your look. It's actually mm-hmm. really comfortable, but people don't know. So yeah. this has been an amazing. This has just been an amazing conversation. I'm so glad we we finally made it work. We got our people with our people and made it happen. Yes. Um, and thank. Thank you so much for being with here with us today, um, Catherine. It's been a lovely conversation. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. On the show. And, <laughs> um, <laughs> having rare. me on means something else across the pond. <laughs> rare. Uh, so, oh, oh, there's that too. Across the pond is a, a completely third meeting. Um, so thank you, lovelies, for joining us today for Horse to Culture. We hope you've enjoyed listening to us as much as we've enjoyed sharing our salon with you. Make sure you always have a seat in our salon. Subscribe to our podcast on your favorite service and give us a five-star rating. It only takes a moment and it helps other people find us. We would be ever so grateful. Call us with your society gossip or questions for your favorite courtesans anytime at 440-4-Whores. We'll be waiting to hear from you. Look for our website at knownworldcourtesans.org. That's K-N-O-W-N-E-W-O-R-L-D-C-O-U-R-T-S-A-N-S dot O-R-G. That's known with an E as in ye olde English. Uh, you can follow the Known World Courtesans on Twitter at SCA Courtesans. We're on Instagram, Tumblr, Pinterest, and Facebook as Known World Courtesans. That's with the E. Join us on our Facebook group where we plan every podcast. We absolutely love to chat. You can find us at facebook.com slash group slash W, the number two C podcast. Facebook won't let us use the word whore in the URL. So we're W, the number two C podcast. We have a Twitter just for the podcast. It's at horse to culture. And our Facebook page, if you just like podcast updates, is facebook.com slash W, 2C podcast. You can also support us by becoming our patron on Patreon. Starting at just a dollar a month, you can get rewards like voting on future salon themes, early access to episodes, videos of known world courtesan members in our historical clothing, and at the tippy top levels, you can have an entire episode of our salon dedicated just to you.
Every one of our salons is a labor of love, but with your help, we can get better recording equipment and basic recording equipment to more of our members so we can bring you more voices and more stories. Please support marginalized voices in podcasting today. Become a patron at www.patreon.com slash horrors to culture. To support modern sex workers worldwide, please visit the Red Umbrella Fund at redumbrellafund.org.